Decimal classification system was originally developed in 1873 by Melville Dewey. Among other things, Melville was a librarian and a man who wanted to reform the English language. He was prone to leaving the e's off of the word have, for instance, and writing the word pamphlets with an f instead of a ph. This latter detail about Dewey actually shines a great deal of light on the atypical type of pedantry that he celebrated. He seemed to want everything to be orderly and unified, so all of those weird spellings and inconsistencies, of which there are many in the modern English language, well, he believed that they should be done away with, and that he was the man to do away with them. Much of his work was written in this reformed English style, including the documents that outlined his famous decimal system. And beyond just the language in which he wrote about this system, Dewey brought this same manic obsession with order to the Dewey Decimal Classification System itself, a system that was originally published under the moniker Decimal Classification and Relative Index for Arranging, Cataloging, and indexing public and private libraries for pamphlets, clippings, notes, scrapbooks, index rerums, etc. An index rerum, in case you were curious, as I was when I first read that term, is either a tabulated and alphabetized notebook, where one stores interesting and notable things that one comes across, or an index of subjects in a book meant to help index indexes, in a way. This is particularly useful in reference books, which contain indexes of names and indexes of places and indexes of words, all separate from each other. This decimal system of Dewey's gained initial popularity in the late 19th century through the mid-20th century, and it became nearly ubiquitous from World War II onward, especially within libraries and similar institutions. The backbone of the system is numerical, with each digit of the number used representing some kind of class or subclass. Or rather, there are ten classes, and each class has ten divisions, and each division has ten sections. The label that a particular unit receives is made up of three whole numbers, followed by a decimal point, which is followed by more numbers that help you more granularly home in on a specific subject. For instance, if you wanted to figure out the Dewey number for European economics, you could take 330, which is the number for economics, 0.9, which is a geographic designator, and 0.04, which is Europe, to get 330.94 European economics. The main classes as of the current 23rd edition of the Dewey Decimal System include Computer Science Information and General Works, Religion, Technology, and Literature, 
which are numbers 000-200-600 and 800, respectively. So those main classes are pretty broad top-level categories, and the smaller numbers, and especially the decimal-pointed numbers, those bring in the more specific subcategories. Now, this is a system by which some people absolutely swear, while other people have trouble conceiving of a worse way to organize shelves meant to be perused by the public. Further, many use cases for the Dewey Decimal Classification System actually require additional partner systems to be used alongside it, specific book numbers or the alphabetizing by author's names of the works of fiction contained in the library, because otherwise the layperson may never find what they want, or the computer systems might have trouble leading you to an exact location on a bookshelf once you've found the proper section. All of that said, the Dewey Decimal System is an excellent example of a relatively flexible, relatively coherent organizational method meant to bring order to a chaotic, ever-growing, ever-changing space. And that's not easy to accomplish even today using all of our modern tools. Another example of an organizational system of this kind, which is similar to the Dewey Decimal System in that it's intelligible to professionals within a particular field but unintelligible to everyone else, is the hex triplet designation for colors in certain computer applications, including HTML and CSS, which are coding languages meant for the web. You have probably come across these numbers at some point, if you've spent any amount of time on the internet, even if you didn't necessarily know what they represented. What you'll see when you look at a hex triplet is the hash symbol, or the hashtag as we're apparently all calling them now, followed by six numbers and or letters, or in some cases three instead of six. And the reason for that I will get to in a second. This system is relatively simple to decode once you know what you're looking at, and there are far fewer categories to memorize than with Dewey's system. The first two digits of the six represent the value for red, the second pair of digits represent the value for green, and the third pair of digits represent the value for blue, RGB, red, green, blue. In a light-based color space, you can make the whole color wheel from different combinations of these three colors. For comparison, it's CMYK, or cyan, magenta, yellow, and black, in the printed ink-based space that allows you to do the same, but in the light-based color space like you find on a computer or smartphone screen, it's RGB. So these six digits tell the software what color to display for a given pixel. Pure black is 000000, which means 0% of each red, green, and blue. Pure white is FFFFFF, which represents 100% of all three main colors, which, again, in the light-based color space, add up to white. The counting in this system goes from 0 to F, so you count from 0 all the way up to 9, and then you start in on the letters from A to F. So that makes C represent 12, and F represents 15 in this space. If all three colors have the same two digits in both of their designated spaces, meaning 000000, which again is black, 
or FFAA88, which is kind of an interesting salmon tangerine color. You can simplify that six-digit code to just three digits, so it would be 000 or FA8, and the software will still know what you mean. Now, knowing all of this, you can look at a hex code like 990000 and think, okay, this is RGB, so there's a large amount of red and 0% of both green and blue. So this will likely be a pure red color of a decent intensity, not the highest intensity you can reach, but a fairly decently high intensity. If you look at FFFF00, you will know that red and green are both at the maximum, and they are combined here, and red and green combined make yellow in this color space. And because there is 0% of blue to muddle the mix, what you'll end up with is a pure primary yellow color. Just as with the Dewey Decimal System, there are flaws with the hex triplet system. At the most basic level, most people never acquire a basic understanding of color theory, and as a result, the hex triplet setup makes very little sense. Why would you assume that those digits represent those colors and that all three of them add up to white? This is also a system that tends to make more sense to computers than humans, which is not all that unusual when it comes to this kind of thing. You're using it primarily to give instructions to software, after all. So it makes sense that our systems would be optimized for that digital audience. We will be talking more about that later, so keep that in mind. More broadly, though, what I want to address today is the organization of knowledge, and more specifically, the organization of knowledge within the most active and successful communication medium ever produced by humans. Today, I want to talk about organizing the internet and the consequences of the methods that we have come up with to do so thus far. You are listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I'd like to unspool today was published on Medium, and it addresses a big, heady topic and raises some super important issues that are tricky to discuss with nuance, which are exactly the types of topics that I like to address here on this podcast. The article is entitled, Something is Wrong on the Internet. This piece was written by a guy named James Brindle, who, among other things, is a writer, lecturer, and artist whose work centers around technology and its application. Wired Magazine named him one of the 100 most influential people in Europe back in 2015. He knows his stuff, technology-wise, especially when it comes to applying technology to art and other content. And that's important to know because this article touches on some fairly tech-heavy topics that might otherwise be difficult to grasp the significance of if expressed by someone with less understanding of how the internet and the media served up on the internet is organized and presented. The center mass of this piece is a trend that Brindle noticed on YouTube, where an entire sub-industry of Me Too copycat accounts have grown and flourished, either making shoddy knockoff versions of successful higher-end content 
like the popular Peppa Pig cartoon, or simply ripping off those cartoons and other content and republishing them on another account, gleaning as many clicks and ad dollars as possible before they're noticed by the YouTube administrators and then booted from the site. This is a rampant problem for intellectual property holders. It's equivalent in some ways to what musicians have long dealt with in the years since Napster, their work being presented to more and more people, but they, the creators, are not making a cent from those additional impressions, typically. Though a better analogy might be if those same artists were to then put their work on Spotify, where they earn a little, fractions of a cent per listen, but it's at least something. And then another knockoff account shows up on Spotify, posts their songs, profits from their work, pulls attention away from their legitimate accounts, which then reduces their income, and then eventually leaves when they're noticed by the powers that be, the admins that are tasked with watching for fake accounts of this kind. And then once they're booted, they come back with another account and repeat the process over and over again. A good deal of what people are watching on YouTube works something like that. We as viewers get to see the stuff for free, and because of the user interface of the site, we can be forgiven for not always noticing, or necessarily caring, which account is serving it up, and who or what entity is making money off of our attention. From our end, it looks very much the same, either way. From the creator's perspective, though, it's incredibly lame and even sometimes economically debilitating that things work this way. As an offshoot of that market, the ripping off of creators and the earning a bit of money before you get caught market, some of these somewhat nefarious producers have started utilizing new technologies so they can stick around longer before being booted. They can break maybe a few tiny rules, but they can involve themselves in less outright theft and copyright infringement. What they do, instead of just ripping off an existing creation and presenting it as their own, is they create new stuff, new videos. And though it's still sometimes derivative in style or theme, or even sometimes uses characters from the Marvel or Disney universe, or characters like Peppa Pig, it uses them in new ways. It combines them into original work that although it's still perhaps troublesome in a strict reading of intellectual property law, it's at least a step up in some ways from just ripping off existing content and uploading it as if it's your own. To make this business model work, the people behind these accounts utilize technologies that have recently become quite cheap. Things like motion capture, green screens, and quick 3D modeling and rendering. They're not going to end up with anything Pixar quality, but Rather than costing hundreds of millions of dollars to make a video, they can use basic camera equipment and 3D modeling software and motion capture technologies to create short films for YouTube that cost them little more than a few days' time and effort. And that's important to note here. If you are a creator putting a lot of time and resources into your work, even if other people are not directly, flagrantly ripping it off, you might still find yourself competing in a market where for every single high-quality video, there are a million very mediocre versions of the same. And these videos are just mediocre quite often. They're not tragically bad and obviously immediately horrible. 
So they're clearly not Pixar, but they're also way, way better than something most of us would be able to make from our home computers. That muddies the water a little, especially for some audiences who might not be able to tell the difference between mediocre and excellent, or care about the difference if they do notice. And this is an issue across the board in most genres of video work, but it's even more of an issue in the world of videos made for children, which is one of the aforementioned audiences that is not likely to get too caught up in the relative production value of the videos that they watch. Videos made for children, and even toddlers, is a fast-growing category on YouTube, as it is easy enough to sit your child in front of an iPad and let them just veg out for a few hours. YouTube will autoplay more of the same kind of content that you initially select, and it will do this endlessly, which then keeps your child engaged and their eyeballs on those videos and advertisements, which then gives you a little bit of breathing room and time to yourself. So it makes sense that this has become so popular. Now, the kid spacing out in front of that iPad does not really care if the characters on the screen are accurate representations of the Hulk or Captain America. They do not care if that's the real Peppa Pig or some low-resolution knockoff. As a consequence, a huge percentage of what's available for kids within the YouTube ecosystem is low-quality trash, and the good stuff is increasingly being nudged aside due to the steady numerical imbalance between well-thought-out, relatively expensive, high-quality videos and the far more abundant, cheap, low-quality videos. And then finally, the people creating this low-quality but high-yield type of content are going the extra mile to try to get their videos recommended to kids, even if the original search wasn't for their content but for something else, something better known with a well-regarded company behind it and higher standards when it comes to production. To do this, to get their content inserted in that cycle, these companies create videos based on algorithmically generated collections of keywords based on what's popular on YouTube. They find established niches that they know that they can target and that they know will net them a certain number of viewers. So you might have a video entitled Safari Animals Fingers Family Song Elephant Lion Giraffe Zebra and Hippo Exclamation Point Wild Animals for Kids. And that's the title. So if that sounds like a somewhat random collection of words, you're not wrong. These titles are generated to hit keyword search sweet spots, which helps them show up as recommendations more often, both in search results and after the kid has watched another again, probably intentionally sought out higher quality video. Because many of these videos are auto-played, a lot of the algorithm-generated variety are shuffled into the mix, and as a consequence, the accounts publishing them, these low-quality, often borderline illegal accounts, become more popular and make more money over time. This technique is similar to what's called SEO, or search engine optimization, in the context of broader web searches. For a long while, folks wanting to make money from ad clicks on the internet would build websites from the ground up, intending to cram as many lucrative keywords onto the page as possible. This could mean writing long, meandering blog posts that contain many instances of the word travel. If you want to rate highly for the travel category of searches and then be able to get high-paying ads for that category on your website. In some cases, they would even cover half the page with invisible text 
words that are the same color as the background, only visible if you highlight them. To trick the early versions of Google's web-crawling spiders, which are programs that search and organize the web, and because these bots, in part, checked to see which words were on the page and how often, and used that as an organizational mechanism to give them relative weight for certain topics and keywords, this trick, gimmicky as it was, very often worked, at least for a time. The same general idea is being applied here, but instead of filling a website with nonsensical text that appeals to web-crawling software and not necessarily humans, they are filling videos and titles and video descriptions with keyword-optimized content, intending to get those kids to sit through their stuff and to get more of their work embedded in that cycle of recommended next videos that are shown over the course of a toddler's viewing period. These videos, many of which are linked to from that article on Medium, but I will link to some of them in the show notes as well, they are bizarre enough by themselves, again, because they are predicated on that random slew of keywords, and so there's not a lot of sense to the storyline or the characters or what's being presented. Some of these videos have live actors, real people, rather than just computer-generated cartoon characters. There is something a little troubling about real actors performing phrases and keywords that make no sense when crammed together, but which, when published as videos, earn them money because the computers prefer such things because of how they organize their video library. These videos make very little sense to fully grown humans, but they're indistinguishable from better quality entertainment to babies. And again, the algorithms also love them, so they tend to see a whole lot of play. Perhaps most disturbing, though, are the videos that seem to be completely, or almost completely, generated by artificial intelligence software. Maybe there's a little bit of human involvement, but mostly these are automated processes slamming content together to achieve those keyword outcomes that they're looking for with as little human effort exerted as possible. There's a knockoff Peppa Pig video embedded in the article that serves as a good and relatively tame, actually, example of what I mean by this. In a real Peppa Pig episode, Peppa goes to the dentist, and a friendly, calm dentist helps her through what might otherwise be a scary checkup. In this knockoff, she goes to the dentist and is essentially tortured with the looping sound of a baby crying in the background throughout that experience. She then leaves the dentist and fights a comic book supervillain from Marvel's arsenal called Venom, and she is then slashed by a circular saw during that fight and is carted away in an ambulance where she's injected with some creepy green chemical in a syringe, and then she leaps from the ambulance and dons a Spider-Man costume, and then she goes back and kills Venom, that villain, who is from the Spider-Man universe and therefore is intellectual property that this account definitely doesn't own the rights to. She kills Venom with that same circular saw. And that is just the first third of that video. Some of the videos that are being made using these characters are clearly satire. Some are being created as bizarro art projects, and some are being clearly produced to make money. They are being bulk produced just to get as many clicks as possible, benefiting from those keyword-laden titles and just good enough quality that I mentioned already. According to the author of this piece on Medium, 
there appear to be people out there who are intentionally seeding the YouTube ecosystem with disturbing videos that appear from the outside, as far as YouTube's robots and any parent can tell, to be normal, normal, usual, kid-friendly videos. Standard online cartoon fare. It's only once you get partway through these videos that you realize that this thing that you thought was Peppa Pig is in fact a brutal, creepy, bizarro version of that cartoon, which can be cringeworthy to adults, but potentially scarring for kids. There's a video entitled Peppa Pig Drinks Bleach for the First Time. That maybe even goes beyond just scarring into the realm of potentially physically dangerous. And that's just one of many such examples that cross that line. Even worse, the author of this piece posits, and I tend to agree with this assertion, is that most of the videos that fall into this category don't even seem to be intentionally disturbing. There's a wrongness to them that is hard to categorize because they're not being made for humans. They're being made to fulfill requirements that algorithms care about, and nothing more than that. They are wrong because they're not even taking our standards of quality into account. Except at the most basic level, that of having some recognizable characters and sound effects and something vaguely resembling a narrative arc. This latter possibility that it's all an accident in a way is so horrible compared to the alternatives because it represents a holistic base level flaw in the way that we organize, categorize, and present content. It means that the systems we use, not just on YouTube, but everywhere on the internet, and increasingly outside the internet, in the modern world as a whole, is fundamentally wrong and can lead to outcomes like this one, where we serve our children twisted, mutilated versions of characters that they love because a platform that we have come to trust believes that their automated systems are up to the task to take good care of us and our kids. So how did we get here? To a place where we even have to have this discussion. How did we arrive at a point in time in which the world's biggest channel, the most complete and popular platform for watching videos, is so easily and regularly gamed by bots and scammers? In the early days of the internet, things were done a bit differently. The technology back then was a lot simpler, of course, but so was the system itself. Pre-web, meaning pre-browser and pre-websites and pre-HTML, There were the early adopters who made use of message boards and simple versions of email. The organizational model for content, then, was typically node-oriented. Each person was a node in the collection of nodes that made up the extent of the internet. This was a system that was rife with nonsensical Usenet posts and email chain letters and the original spam messages, Nigerian princes that were looking for people to hold their money even back then, but it wasn't a very good means of making money for most people. The economic capabilities of that version of the network were lousy, and it wasn't a world that was within reach to most people either. Early adopters, university students, and scientists made up the bulk of the internet at that time, in the years leading up to the 90s. Then came a slew of new developments in relatively quick succession, Tim Berners-Lee developed the World Wide Web, the HTML programming language, and the Hypertext Transfer Protocol, HTTP, among several other important innovations. This hyperlink concept, allowing pages to link, to connect, to other pages, was quite revelatory. He wasn't the first person to conceive of the concept, but he was the first to build it and make it usable. 
the Mosaic web browser, which was a graphical interface that allowed even non-tech savvy people to access the World Wide Web, first arrived in January of 1993. This increased the web's usability and capabilities and led to the mid to late 90s showdown between Netscape and Microsoft, which added its own Explorer web browser into the mix. From the late 90s to the early 2000s, many of the pieces that the modern web was built upon fell into place, and all that was left was bringing more money into the businesses that needed it to scale. That money arrived, but arguably a little too much too quickly, which was part of what led to the dot-com bubble of the early 2000s. During that time period, the internet stopped being a collection of isolated but roughly interconnected nodes and started to be more of a mesh with increasing connectivity for everyone, but also an increasing number of interdependencies. A website called Yahoo became popular, and it did really well, even though all it was at first was a page with a list of links to websites that existed and which the operators of the site thought were interesting. Then came a slew of sites that took that concept further, attempting to aggregate all of the web pages that existed into one searchable, phone book-like entity. AltaVista was one such company, and it originally popped up in 1995, but it was then bought out by Yahoo in 2003, after an upstart company called Google, which leveraged improved web search algorithms to wrangle a dominant share of the online search market, arrived in 1997 and drank their milkshake. It stole a significant portion of all other search engines' user bases. Google's emergence, arguably, shaped a great deal of what has happened over the last two decades leading up to today. Its model of organizing the increasingly massive and scattered web, assigning rankings based on all kinds of variables, those variables kept secret in an attempt to prevent abuse, and any gaming of the system, allowed it to crawl the web, show relationships between pages that linked to each other, and determine relative authority on different topics based on these links and thousands of other variables. This, paired with their advertising capabilities, fueled both the dot-com bubble and what happened when Silicon Valley recovered from that and tried again. Google's ad network has powered a shocking number of companies, and has even led to the complete restructuring of entire industries, like newspapers and video games, many of which have come to orbit that same gravitational center of ad dollars. Google bought YouTube in 2006, one year after YouTube was launched. They paid $1.65 billion for the service, and although it was considered to be a very bad move by many people at the time, It's now considered to be one of the better tech industry purchases in history. The videos served up on YouTube make use of search algorithms and ads, just like with Google's other offerings elsewhere. So they organize videos and choose what to present in much the same way that Google organizes websites to decide what to show you after you search for a word or phrase. Almost 5 billion videos are streamed per day on YouTube, and about 300 hours of video are added to the service, uploaded by users, every single minute. With numbers like that, it makes sense that they would need to automate just about everything. There's no way they could hire enough people to watch every minute of every video that they eventually serve up to their community. 
And you could say the same of much of the internet these days, though with different company names and types of content swapped out for YouTube and videos. There's no way Facebook can view every single post that goes out to people on their network, and no way Google can police every ad that they place alongside search results. There's no way Apple can keep up with every change to every app sold in their app store. And there's no way that Twitter can block every Nazi and troll and Russian spam bot. And yet, those are the solutions that immediately come to mind when our information streams are polluted with fake information about contemporary political happenings and angry, threatening mobs of tweet bots going after anyone using the wrong keywords on Twitter. Why doesn't someone just take care of it? Don't they see what I see? There's no way that the people running these companies do not know what's happening. It's so obvious what is happening. But unfortunately, that's often not the case, or at least not in the way that we assume it should be. Folks on the other side of the network, those running things, they see a great deal, but not necessarily exactly what you see, and definitely not in the same order and using the same interface. Further, it's not entirely clear what they could do, even if they did see exactly what you saw. All of these companies have broad sets of rules meant to allow relative freedom for users while also reining in the worst human impulses and habits. These rules are continuously being tested and tweaked, and there are plenty of ways to do horrible things while still upholding the letter of the law, if not the spirit of it. All the same, many would claim it's the companies providing these technologies that should fix things, while others might argue that it's probably impossible to solve every problem for every user in an equitable manner, so we should maybe adjust our expectations instead. Let's take a look at that disagreement from both extreme ends of the spectrum. On one side, we've got the algorithm apologists, those who would argue that, yes, okay, some weird, even harmful stuff slips through the cracks in these systems. But the systems themselves, I mean, they are amazing. They are arguably worth all of the bad stuff that comes with them. This is an appealing point of view. If you think about it, a great deal of what we take for granted in the modern world is enabled by algorithms and automation. These are systems that imbue every human being who utilizes them with massively amplified capabilities. They even allow a team of a few thousand people to manage a platform that serves up billions of videos each day to viewers around the world. Netflix, Amazon, Google, Apple, Facebook, YouTube, these companies and countless others that build and operate products and services that we use every single day, they are all predicated on these types of technologies. And while the downsides are not the same in every instance, on Amazon you might get shipped a knockoff version of the charger that you paid for, which was purportedly made by Apple, while on Google you might be directed to a website that does not contain much of value, but which scores highly with their search algorithm, there's still downsides, but these downsides are generally tolerable because they allow us to get almost anything that we might want to buy shipped to us in two days with free shipping and the benefits of having unlimited free and cheap content to consume whenever and however we want to consume it. That's pretty huge. We could look those gift horses in the mouth, but would we want to? if regulating those horses meant that we couldn't have any horses at all, and especially not cheap or free. These benefits we enjoy by their very nature will be too big to monitor 
by hand individually. They are valuable in part because of their massive scale. And within any bulk medium, any sufficiently large harvest of anything, you're going to find a certain percentage of rotten fruit, of bad apples. That's just how these things work. And to find the offenders that slip by requires changing those algorithms, which in turn can mean reducing the overall quality of content and service. It means tightening the broad criteria for participation, which means, perhaps, killing off a lot of legit satirical films in an effort to get rid of the accidentally creepy Peppa Pig videos. The other side of this argument could come from one or more of a few different angles. The first is usually reducible to something like, this is horrible and lame and don't tell me you can't do anything about it, you just don't want to do anything about it. And that's not entirely wrong, probably, in many cases. As horrible as some of these videos on YouTube are, it's inarguable that they get a lot of views, and that means a lot of ad revenue for the platform. And in cases like Twitter, where users are begging those in charge to ban Nazis and trolls and bots and abusers, well, if they apply those types of restrictions broadly, they could end up booting as many as 10 to 20% of their total user base, not to mention some of the more well-known celebrity political users who have a whole lot of followers and who often run afoul of their existing service agreement. So the argument here is that something could be done, but it's not, because the incentives that currently exist are encouraging these companies to keep the bad stuff around and motivating them to only make small adjustments where necessary so as not to curtail their payday. The other argument from the same side, and one that I think is a little bit more accurate more of the time in that it takes into account more of the realities of the scale of these platforms, is that they need an incentive overhaul. It's not enough to just change some of the rules and periodically ban users who threaten other users with rape or murder, or those who post knockoff videos that run afoul of intellectual property laws. You have to restructure the networks, the platforms, the algorithms underpinning these systems from the roots upward. To do anything else is slapping a band-aid on a rotting limb. The commercial models these networks are based on cannot help but encourage this kind of behavior. Gaming the system is second nature when the systems are structured in this way. And that means bad outcomes will always be a latent part of them until and unless something fundamentally changes in what these companies consider success, in which metrics they are using to determine how well or how badly things are going. Because at the end of the day, a bunch of complaints to their customer service department are not great, but it's not so bad when the advertising cash is still rolling in because you have captured all that attention. Even if the product you're serving up is not stellar, if you're still getting paid for it and you're part of an economic entity that exists for the sole purpose of increasing shareholder value, like a corporation, you know where your bread is buttered. You'll probably be required to make noises about how much you care about these complaints in public, but actually doing anything about it is not a priority, especially if the proposed solutions would get in the way of that hot meal ticket that you've already built. This discussion also traces back to a larger issue that is causing a lot of trouble in wildly disparate industries, and which will probably be a problem pretty much across the board in the coming decade. And that is the issue that arises when we use algorithms 
and increasingly use artificial intelligences, which are basically a collection of algorithms that learn and change over time. The issue that arises when they make choices and we don't know exactly why they make the choices they make. Chances are that today, if you asked a YouTube engineer why a particular video was recommended after you watched another video on the platform, she could take a look at the data, at the keywords, at the account, at the time of day, and she could tell you which variables led to that particular video being summoned up and played next, rather than some other video from their massive library. But as these systems become more complex, they become black boxes, magical devices that you feed variables and which then spit out solutions on the other side. There's a good chance that engineer could work her way backward and tell you which variables led to that choice, but it could take a while. And it could be that the software presents her with a slurry of info that would be nearly incomprehensible to a human, even a skilled engineer, to the point that it would require another piece of software to translate it into something that we could understand so that we could conceive of the decision tree that it worked through to arrive at the recommendation that it made. Some technology and job market oracles are already predicting that the employment opportunities for people who are able to understand the inner workings of these black boxes, of these algorithms and AIs, will be in a good spot in the coming years. Even as other jobs disappear, they predict, the ability to figure out why these things did what they did and to explain that decision to the layperson, that will be a super valuable skill set. At least in part because it will be very difficult. It will require translating machine logic into human logic, essentially. Translating the sums derived from a cold calculus that uses data and metrics that do not perfectly align with our own, often irrational, often emotion-influenced decisions, translating those into something that we can grasp, something that makes sense to us, when the word sensical might mean something very different to the machine that we are trying to understand. Part of what's tricky about this whole scenario is that you cannot build a hammer that can't also be used as a weapon. Any tool that we produce can be used for what most would consider to be socially positive ends, but can also be utilized for what most would consider to be socially negative ends. You can swing that hammer and build a house, or you can swing it in broad, heavy arcs and hurt the people around you. There's never been a hammer that could not be used in both ways. The same is true of these other technological tools. Even though they seem different from hammers in many respects, at the end of the day, they have that same dichotomous nature. If you create a platform that allows the sharing of wonderful things, some not-so-wonderful things will slip through as well. If you create a technology that allows for the sharing of information with everyone on the planet faster than ever before, then you'll speed up the dispersal of bad or incorrect information alongside the good. If you put omni-devices in everyone's pocket, those devices can be utilized as tools to make and share and keep in touch with each other, but they can also be used to drain the device's owner of time and energy and attention. Human-based algorithms, like the review systems that are so fundamental to Yelp and Amazon, those can be gamed as well. Yelp's reviews are maintained by an internal mafia, essentially, that threatens business owners into becoming advertisers, lest they hide their five-star reviews and promote their one-star reviews. 
and Amazon's reviews are easily manipulated by bots and sock puppet accounts, the same types of strategies that have been used to influence which books rise to the top of the New York Times bestseller list. Algorithms that require less human attention are even more gameable because they are meant to scale up massively and, as a consequence of that, to be left largely unattended, unwatched by any clerical human eyes, at least on the back end. As a result, so long as you understand what these systems are looking for, you can make something that looks like a perfect video, the perfect product, the perfect business, and that will lead people to your fake, hacked whatever, because we've come to trust these systems implicitly. They are right or right-ish enough of the time that we've come to unload all kinds of responsibilities onto them. And frankly, quite often, we are right to do this. They are good enough, enough of the time, that it would be almost silly not to take advantage of the benefits that they offer in many situations. Recognizing this root system of tools, these algorithms and AI systems that underpin everything, allows us to make better choices about which tools to use and when. It also allows us to more clearly see through potential obfuscation more of the time, or at the very least, it allows us to be aware that what we are seeing may not be accurate and may require follow-up. The preponderance of fake news would not be such a big deal if we were all using the available tools that we have at our fingertips optimally. We have the ability to check sources and trace rumors and lies back to their source. We all have the potential to be less credulous and gullible. We all have the ability to do this with a few minutes' time and a few taps and clicks. But we do not usually take those few minutes and spend those productive clicks. Because part of what we are served, alongside all this convenience, which again is largely beneficial, Alongside that convenience, we are served complacency and trust. And although I would argue that the makers of these tools have done a spectacular job increasing the quality of life for many people on the planet and have given us a great deal that we should be thankful for, they haven't earned our trust yet. They've earned some money, sure, and we can use their stuff and generally be happy with what we get, but we'd be better served to question what we are being served, rather than devouring it without thinking. We would be better served to utilize the underappreciated, under-advertised benefits of these systems to amplify our own curiosity, rather than allowing the robots to guide us from one destination to the next, never looking up and noticing landmarks and taking responsibility to understand where we are and how we got there, and how we might get back if we ever want to. The big picture here is fascinating because it ties together all of those issues. But part of why this medium piece is such a great entry point to those larger ideas is that it's very visceral and there are kids involved. And when you can engage your emotions and especially your protect the children emotions to make you care more about something that might otherwise seem dry and forgettable, that's kind of a win. I'm willing to use those emotions to make a point to catalyze interest in concepts that might otherwise be difficult to sell. So this issue of our trusting these technologies and allowing them to guide us rather than using them consciously and intentionally has led us to a place where a platform exists that is optimized to serve children, to serve toddlers even, disturbing videos that might scar them for life. 
I mean, maybe not. These videos are twisted, but kids are resilient. I don't have any kids myself, so I don't have any firsthand experience in that regard, and I am certainly not an expert on childhood psychology. But even if the kids could bounce back after just a few nightmares, it seems like an issue worth questioning and addressing. And if we question, we have to question the entire setup, the near-infinite scaling of a system built to serve more of what the computers tell us we want based on metrics we don't fully understand, operated by people who themselves designated those metrics, but who will likely never see the content being created to fulfill those parameters, or understand how the creators of that content are manipulating their profit-optimizing system. It's all part of the same deal. We can't really pick it apart and decide just to fix tiny pieces of that larger whole, not if we want anything to actually change. But in questioning, we do run the risk of creating entirely new problems. We might create a situation in which, for instance, the hilarious satire created by the DPRK News Service Twitter account is banned alongside accounts created to troll American politicians. We could accidentally kill off educational videos about anatomy or sexual education alongside videos that celebrate sexual violence. We could delete Johnny Sun's delightful and friendly tiny care bot on Twitter, which automatically posts things like, please take a quick moment to wiggle your toes and spend some time outside if you can, please. Alongside the swarm of Twitter bots pretending to be real people living in the US Midwest and South that collectively tweet threats of violence at prominent women politicians and celebrities. So where do we draw the line then? For many of us, unfortunately, our opinion on these issues will be decided by our party designation. My political party seems to support this side and these cases, so I do the same. That line of reasoning keeps us from having to think difficult thoughts and muddle through difficult gray areas, I know. But I would encourage you to try to be aware of that heuristic when you use it, when you succumb to that mental shortcut and to attempt to question those prefabricated answers and solutions. There's a good chance that they don't actually align with your real opinion, or at least not completely, in all situations, and that is worth recognizing and addressing. When I approach these kinds of issues, I usually give myself permission ahead of time, up front, to not come down strongly in favor of any extreme, any pre-built answer or solution. It's entirely okay to say, I don't know, or there is no good universal solution that applies all the time. In this case, I don't personally think there is a good solution that will allow all of these platforms to remain valuable megaphones for information and perspectives while also shutting down all of the bad stuff. I don't think it can be done with modern technologies and methods. I also think, as I mentioned before, that you'd have to do a complete overhaul of the economics behind these services to get closer to something equitable for most people most of the time. That said, I don't think it's wasted effort to speculate and wonder, to dream about how we might solve these issues and how we might do it with the fewest trade-offs possible. Just because there's no obvious solution doesn't mean there's no solution. And just because I cannot see a way to make it work, and maybe you can't either, doesn't mean that someone out there does not have a brilliant 
idea, a brilliant means of making that happen, of getting all the good with none of the bad. Encouraging discourse and disseminating information, I would guess, is part of what will help us improve upon the flaws in these platforms as they exist today. But those very flaws also tend to poison the well of knowledge and keep us from interacting in valuable ways, or as valuably as we might be able to communicate, lacking those pollutants, at least. Starting from the individual level, there are things we can do to alleviate some of these issues today, or at least lessen their potency. We will all probably still fall for bad journalism and believable misinformation from time to time, even when we're being attentive and skeptical. But we can fall for it less, and should, whenever we can muster the energy and time to pay closer attention and use the tools available more wisely. And that is a big ask, I know. The very systems that are meant to free up more time and energy for such things, for us to be our best, wisest selves, often achieve the opposite, get caught at the center of that cycle of exhaustion and time drainage, and you might not be able to get sufficient sleep, much less spend time checking the sources for an article that you're thinking of sharing on Facebook. Small, simple acts can help at the individual level. And those do, with time, scale up to the societal level. But it is a slow climb up a steep cliff, no matter how you do it. We can hope that one of these tools that we build one of these days will provide us with a ladder, or even an escalator, to make that vertical movement less taxing. But in the meantime, all we can really do is shuffle slowly upward and try not to fall too far or too frequently. I'd like to recommend a podcast instead of a book today. This is actually kind of a limited run podcast that was produced by Audible, but it was recently released to the general public as well. And the podcast is entitled The Butterfly Effect, and it's by John Ronson, who is one of my favorite authors. He writes really delightful, semi-narrative, non-fiction work on a slew of different topics. But he is a man whose voice I'd never heard before, and he has a really charming British accent. And considering the topic of this podcast, it becomes even more delightful. This is a podcast essentially about the ripple effects of creating a website that is essentially a YouTube for porn. The creation of a website where people can get unlimited porn for free, which then went on to create a massive amount of wealth for the website's creator, which drained a great deal of wealth from the traditional pornographic industry and the various people who work within that industry, but then also created some very surprising ripple effects to porn-adjacent and barely porn-related communities and industries as well. So hearing this man tell this story incredibly articulately, but then also having pornographic terms and techniques and things described to him and hearing him talk about that was just hilarious and interesting and fascinating on multiple levels. So if you're looking for a good listen that operates a bit more like an audiobook, really, than a podcast, because it is a limited-run thing, consider checking out The Butterfly Effect by John Ronson. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find my blog at xllifestyle.com. And you can find the show notes for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsnotethings.com. 
Feel free to reach out and say hello on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, pretty much any social network you might think to check. At Colin is my name, though it's just Colin Wright on Facebook. Thank you so much for listening. My name is Colin Wright, and I will talk to you again next week. Thank you.